This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. A copy of God's Word you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. You'll find that on page 1016 in the Black Pew Bible, should you care to use one of those. And Welcome everybody again and a happy Father's Day to all you dads and granddads and this morning, we want to hear how our Heavenly Father uh, wants His church to be living. 1 Peter chapter 4, we left off last week at verse 6. We'll pick it up here at verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Let's hear the word of the Lord. 1 Peter verse 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And say it with me, amen. amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, cause your word to deeply reside in our hearts this morning. May your name be magnified. Give us receptivity. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes, grant us faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Well, what Peter's been teaching us through this book is that uh, suffering for being a Christian is, is inevitable uh, to some degree in this life. He told us last week that living for the will of God uh, will result in some mockery. It will result in malice of others coming upon us. Again, should it be the will of God? But we, we are to remember, he told us that suffering for the faith and even death are not the last word. Uh, he reminded us last week that there is a judgment coming, a judgment for those who afflict the people of God and fail to repent of their sin and place their faith in God's gracious Son and what He's done for them. And the, but for those of us who are in Christ, what lies ahead is not judgment. What lies ahead is life, life in the Holy Spirit, life after this life. And so he, having reminded us of that and having spoken about the end, having pointed out and having given them this hope, he continues to build on this idea of what lies ahead. And he says in verse 7, he looked down, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Literally, it means the end has drawn near. The end of all things 
has drawn near. That's in the Greek perfect tense. Remember, that means it's, it's, it's drawn near in the past, and it still is near. It's almost like human history has come up to a precipice, and we're standing on the edge of the end of all things. And this should affect the way we live, and that's why he says, therefore. Therefore, if that is the case, it should affect how we live. This is how our Heavenly Father wants us, His children, to live as a church together. I remember my first, uh, my first uh, eschatology class in seminary. Eschatology is that word that means the, the study of the last things, you know. And I was ready for all the charts and all the dates and all that. And my professor went on and on and on about the ethical purpose of eschatology. The ethical purpose of eschatology. It's not about date setting. It's not about guessing. It's not about charts. It's not about figuring out who the Antichrist is. It's about, are you living ready? (laughs) The ethical purpose of eschatology. And so this is what Peter's teaching us, beloved, in these verses. What he's telling us is that because the end is near, and always near for us, Believers should seek to glorify God by thinking soberly, by loving fervently, and by serving faithfully. And we do all these things together. The context in which he is speaking is a corporate context, the community of the the local church. Now, before we look at each of those, those three of thinking soberly and loving earnestly and serving faithfully, we should say a little bit about what he means, and some about what he says about the end of all things is at hand, as the ESV puts it, or is dear, has drawn near. What this implies is that the goal, the telos of all human history, where it's always been pointed to, is close. It's close. That to which history has been moving towards. And this is, this is what the New Testament calls the Christian hope. And that is the revelation of God openly to the earth, uh, wrapped up in the second coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, um, it's been 2,000 years, right, since Peter wrote these words. That's a real long is near, right? Uh, That's a real long is at hand. And Peter knew and was aware that there would be those who would mock because of that. And even in his own time, in his generation. And he addressed that in his second letter to these churches. If you, if you can turn a couple pages over or say nowadays, scroll a little bit up. You can go to 2 Peter in chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what he says, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. And here's what they're going to say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the second coming of Jesus? Where is the kingdom of God? Where is the new heavens and new earth and the judgment? 
Ever since the creation of the world, it's one day after another. It's always been the same. And he goes on in verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. I'd say 2,000 years would be slow. That's my perspective. But, he says, the Lord's not slow. He is patient. Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that applies to everybody in this room. If you're not in Christ, you're not a believer. Thank God the end hasn't come. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You don't expect a thief. You don't know when a thief is going to break in. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's the ethical purpose of eschatology. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, you see? So Peter says, listen, the passing of the centuries does not undermine the trustworthiness of God's promises, of God's plan. You know, no dates for the return of Christ were ever given to the apostles. In fact, they asked, is now the time? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the time. It's for you to get busy doing what I've called you to do. And from God's perspective, it's only been two days. <laughs> only two days. And only God's long-suffering patience for human beings is what holds back all the consequences of the end. Terrible for many, gloriously unspeakable for those who have faith in God, who have faith in Christ. It's only his patience that holds that back. Now, two more things to note then about this whole idea of the end is near, or the end is drawn near. Uh, first of all, the first coming of Christ, the first coming of the Son of God, inaugurated what the New Testament calls the last days. We tend to think of the last days of what, uh, referring to those things that still lay ahead. Well, it includes those, but the last days began in the first coming of the Messiah. Uh, what do I mean? Well, listen, uh, the, the Old Testament pointed to the coming of God's promised one, the coming of the Messiah. And in the incarnation of the Messiah, in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God, the kingdom of God arrived. But what was a mystery to those who read the Old Testament scriptures until the time of Christ was that there would be a separation, that there would be two comings, that the arrival of the Son of God, the arrival of the Messiah in His first coming would bring about many of the promised blessings of the kingdom of God. Uh, we have eternal life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have been converted, who believe in the Jesus, the Son of God. We have the promise of, uh, of forgiveness. We're told there's no condemnation now 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. So many of the promises of the, of the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God broke through in his first coming. The last days were initiated, but not all the blessings came in the first coming. And this was what was a mystery. Fulfillment without consummation. Already, but not yet. And we live in, in that tension of the last days between his first and his second coming. Why is it that the last days are initiated? Why is it that we live in the time that we do? Why is it we can say it's the last days? Again, it's because God so loved his son, the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he was born in the fullness of times. And we're told by the author of Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews 9, 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. That's referring to his first coming. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why are we in the last days? Because the Son of God came and he has put away sin. He has paid the penalty for sin for those of you who place your faith in him. And just as it is appointed for man, meaning just as it's appointed for human beings to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, first coming, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because he did, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, you see. And so this is the mystery that was not understood, that there would be this period of time known as the last days between the first and the second coming of the Son of God. Uh, Peter's already referred to this age in, the same, in this way. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, he said he was, speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. He's talking about the incarnation, in the last times for the sake of you. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, chapter, verse 2, he says, in these last days... God has spoken to us. The Father has spoken to us in His Son. Yes, in these last days. And you remember the experience of the apostles in the early church after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And on that first day of Pentecost, when, when the heavens were opened, as it were, and the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church, and all these, all these wonderful things took place to show and demonstrate that the Holy Spirit had come, and Peter had to stand up and explain what was happening. And he said, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and he quotes Joel, in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, Peter's saying, this is now. This is the last days. And the last thing to note then about this statement that Peter makes of the end of all things is drawn near uh, is that the apostles and the disciples were all taught by Jesus to always live as if he was right at the door able to open it at any moment. In the Gospel of Luke, it's recorded that Jesus told this parable of the good and faithful steward. 
And then he said to the, to the disciples in Luke 12, verse 40, he says, you, you also must be ready, speaking to them, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter, the author of our letter, he says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager or steward? That'll come up later whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Be ready. Be about the things that God has called you and me to do. That's what he said. This is what the, the apostles and the disciples were taught. This was the supreme motive then for holy living. He could come at any time. The Lord could be here, and we will give an account to him. So what kind of church it would be if we are to live in light of the end? What kind of a church does our Father want us to be? What should characterize us? How do we live in light of the end and under the growing pressure of, of society and culture? First of all, by thinking soberly. Look at verse 7. We're back at 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand or is drawn near. Therefore, and here's the first thing he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That first verb there, be self-controlled, means to have a sound mind. And it was used in contrast of people who were demon-possessed, <laughs> who are totally irrational. And so he's saying, you have a clear head. <laughs> Think rationally. Be sensible. Have a clear, have a clear mind. You know. Uh, you know, talk of the end. Talk of the end times. Talk about judgment. Though, that can cause some people to lose their mind. <laughs> and it has. Even among many Christians. To stop thinking sensibly. Some become obsessed with the end. Obsessed with things that God didn't tell us anything about. Wouldn't even tell his apostles about. Date setting and signs and the wonders and so forth. Every major event in the world in the Middle East that takes place suddenly becomes a basis for a whole new video series, you know. About the timing of the end. Then we go on and we go on and of course none of that happens. And now and then one will, will dare even to predict a day and set a date. And, and people can become obsessed with that. They become drunk with this idea that it's, and they sell all their possessions and move somewhere and await the second coming on the day that it was promised. And it's, it's just shattering because that doesn't happen. And so he says, keep a clear head. The end, the end of all things is near, but let's think clearly about it. <laughs> Others, others live without a clear head <clears throat> by seldom even thinking about a second coming, which is totally irrational for a Christian. Why? Because we know the end of the story. <laughs> and so we should think about it, but we should think rationally. We should think soberly. That's the second verb he uses. Be sober. In contrast to what? Drunk. And what he's talking about here is metaphorically, right? The idea is to remain alert. Drunkards aren't alert. You could sneak up right on them. But he says, you be sober. You think clearly. Uh, and remember, 
that the end could come at any moment. Isn't that amazing to think that right now, we could, the next thing that we could experience when we walk out here is the end? Well, that's how we should be thinking. Chapter 1, Peter's already mentioned this. Chapter 1, remember this, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. What's it mean to be sober-minded? Set your hope fully on government. I'm glad you read your Bible. That's not what it says, does it, right? Set your hope fully on your wealth, on your health. No, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's spoken about this. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he used the same verb again. He'll say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember, there is an enemy who seeks to undermine your faith. So think soberly. Uh, be alert. Keep your head clear, right? Don't become intoxicated with what? Intoxicated with <clears throat> the idolatries of the world, the false pursuits, the empty pursuits. Don't become drunken in your mind thinking that the purpose of life is, is wrapped up in the amount of experiences you can experience and take that selfie and put it on Facebook. Don't, be, don't become drunken with the idea that life, life issues from your possessions. Don't become drunken with any philosophy of life, he says, that isn't based on the truth. And be alert. Understand what the brevity and frailty of life. It's short. It's fragile. And so make the most of your time, you know. Today's Father's Day. Dad, you can't put off forever. You can't put off forever the things you plan to be experiencing with your children and things you will eventually get to say, you'll eventually get to do. There may be no tomorrow for you. Say, Live sensibly, he says. Think clearly, right? Well, this is for the church, he says. For the sake of your prayers. And you notice the plural there? I'm glad the ESV put the plurals there, there for the sake of your prayers because every time the New Testament uses prayers in the plural, it's not talking about your personal different kinds of prayers. It's talking about the, the gatherings for prayer, the church. He says, your prayers, the times that you come together to pray. Why? Because people, a church who tends to lose his head tends to not pray correctly, tends to not gather and seek the will of God through prayer correctly. Don't lose your minds, she says. Think rationally for the sake of the times when you come together to pray. We need grace to live in this world. We need grace to live under pressure. We need grace to walk and and to live in a way that is pleasing to God, though the world makes a mockery of it. And to pray, to get grace, we need to pray. And to pray, we need to pray with clear heads. And to pray with clear heads as a church under pressure also means to pray for those who persecute us. With a clear mind here, he says. Think about what this all means. Don't panic, he says. Pray. Think clearly. The future belongs to God. You're in His hands. Don't panic, but Pray, keep sober, keep alert. Boy, I think this is 
something we need to hear, don't you? There's never been a time in human history when human beings and Christians, I'm, I'm talking about specifically, are so bombarded with everything that's going on around us in the world. It's hard to keep a clear head, isn't it? Think clearly, think soberly. And what, what kind of a call is this? Is this a call to some sort of radical Christianity? Huh? Sort of hiding in the woods and, or, 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 or leaving all and being dropped in a parach- from a parachute and some other distant part of the world? No, I, I love what Juan Sanchez says in his commentary on this. He says, it's a call to normal Christianity. We're supposed to have clear heads. <laughs> We're supposed to live every day <laughs> like a people who have placed our hope in a glorious future. That's it. Every day as, God, as, as dads, every day as moms, every day as students, as single, every day as, as workers, employers, employees, whatever callings, vocations God has given you, This is not some call to radical Christianity. It's a call to living every day in light of the precipice on which we stand in faith. Uh, Two historical figures to think about. Uh, The first was John Wesley. You know, we don't agree with everything John uh, said, but John and Charles, his own brother, they didn't agree on theology. John wrote some great hymns. uh, He was a very holy a holy man. John Wesley was asked what he would do if he knew Jesus would return the next day. Trick question, huh? <laughs> and uh, I've heard two versions of the response. One is that he opened his journal and read what he would do, what he had down in his journal. And the other uh, that I've heard is that he said exactly what was in his journal. And here's what it is. I would go to bed, and I'd go to sleep. I'd wake up in the morning, and I go on with my work, for I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed for me to do. <laughs> and so what is he saying? He's saying, I've always lived my life uh, fulfilling what God has called me to do. And if he were to come tomorrow, I hope he find me simply doing what he's called me to do. <laughs> Martin Luther, the reformer, was asked the same question, only he wasn't even given tomorrow. It was today. <laughs> Martin, what would you do if you knew the end would come today? And he replied in his sort of way of speaking all the time. He said, I'd plant a tree and I'd pay my taxes. What's he getting at? The same thing. I always live every day for the Lord. And I plan to plant a tree for the Lord. And so tomorrow I'll plant a tree. And I'll pay my taxes. In other words, I'll fulfill my duties as God has called me to, to fulfill them. So this is not some call to radical Christianity. It's a call to uh, awakened, normal Christianity. We are people of the second coming. We live in the last days. We are the people of the eschatological spirit. He's been given to us. We live in the time of the Gentiles of the gospel being preached to all the nations. And we live in the time when whatever vocations we have, fathers, mothers, students, single, business people, 
we can now glorify God through everything we do. Right. As Luther said, you don't need to be a monk. <laughs> and so that's the first thing. He wants us thinking soberly. Are you thinking clearly? And secondly, loving earnestly. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'll explain why I put those two together. Verse 8 and 9, loving earnestly. And so he stresses the importance of mutual love uh, by putting it at the summit of Christian virtue, right? Above all, above everything, keep loving one another. And he's already stressed love. He stressed love several times in this letter in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, 17. Uh, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> love brethren. And then chapter 3, verse 8, uh, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. See, Peter has stressed love already three times. I think it's fitting because Peter was asked three times, do you love me? Do you love me? One more time, Peter. Do you love me? Peter un understood the importance of, of thinking clearly, soberly, because he didn't. And he denied Christ under pressure. And he understands the value of loving one another, as the Lord asked him. We know that love is the, the, the highest virtue of the Christian life. Paul stresses that way. Right? Faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love, right? Above all, says Peter, Keep loving one another. And what is the quality of this love? He uses the term agape. Sometimes we don't want to make too, stress too much the different uses of the word. But here really he's talking about the quality of love that desires the welfare of the one who's loved. And love that is motivated not by the worthiness of the object. That's the kind of love that God has, has shown you and me. You and I are not worthy of his love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And though while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the kind of love, he says, to be showing each other. Love that seeks the benefit of others, the highest good of others, that isn't motivated by the fact that they deserve it in any way. And he uses the reflexive pronoun, meaning he's stressing that it comes back to you. What did Paul say to, to, to husbands? He says, to love your wife is to love yourself. Why? Because you're one flesh. And Peter, by using this reflexive pronoun, he's saying, as you are loving one another, you're loving yourself. Why? Because you are one body. And churches living in this world, and under pressure especially, need to be loving each other. Living in a body that expresses love. And he insists that this, the manner of love be very specific. Keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly is a very strong word. It's a beautiful word. It, 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 it could be translated fervent, 
And so it's speaking about the intensity, or it could be translated constantly. I think New American Standard did that. And it's talking about its duration. I think the ESV, I think, has it right here that it's about the intensity of this love. And this word was used to describe a horse that was in full gallop. And you can see all those muscles. It was used to describe the muscles, uh, the taut muscles of an athlete when he was stretching to break that, that tape at the finish line. And so he's saying, keep loving each other intensely. You need this so no one falls away. You need this so people don't lose hope. Outdo others in loving one another. Stretch yourself in love. And then he says, Here's the reason, love covers a multitude of sins. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? I know it's been abused. What's he mean? He doesn't mean we should hide all sin. <laughs> One of the most loving things you could ever do to somebody is walk up to them and say to them, you know that's what you're doing is not right. You know what you're doing is against the will of God. You know it's sin. And it will bring discipline. That's one of the most loving things you could do. So when he says love covers a multitude of sins in the church body, it doesn't mean we, we hide all sin, nor does he mean that your, your mutual love for someone else somehow atones for your sins. No. Why not? Because God has sent his son into the world, right? In these last days at the end of the ages to do what? To put away sin forever by the sacrifice of himself, you see. Don't, don't, don't hear this today and think that if you try loving someone uh, who's unlovely that your sins will be forgiven. There's only one way to know your sins are forgiven and that is to repent of your sin and to believe that Jesus, the son of God, has died for your sins. He's paid for them, you see. And so when he says that love covers a multitude of sins, what is he talking about? Uh, Tom Schreiner, the New Testament scholar, says this about it. He says, when believers lavish love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. Meaning those sins against you those, those offenses against you can be overlooked in the body by virtue of the intensity of our love for one another. What's he mean? Well, let's look at it negatively. Listen, when people don't love, when a church doesn't love, what happens? They use the sins of others as a springboard. They use the sins of others as a springboard to insult, to attack them, to attack the church, to accuse to gossip, but when the church is filled with love, we aren't walking around looking for faults in other people, ready to jump on something, looking for that one little thing so we can magnify what's wrong with this church. I'll tell you what's wrong with this church. Love covers a multitude of sins and uh, we need that you know we can't afford to be attacking one another the world does plenty of that we need to 
be patient with one another. Can I ask you, have you ever covered sins like this? I don't mean heinous sins against God. I'm talking about those horizontal offenses. Have you covered sin? Can you? Will you? Well, I tell you, somebody has already covered yours. And he covered them at the cost of his own life. And he covered them from God, the Father. And he's made peace on your behalf. And so you make peace, huh? You make peace with other brothers and sisters. Don't be quick to point out what's wrong, what's weak. And love fervently. And then he goes on, he says, show hospitality. You notice that ESV has that there as a, as a verb, as a command, an imperative, show hospitality. There's actually no verb there. And translators you know, want to make it a verbal statement for us in English. But I think the reason it wasn't another verb, and Peter could have stated it as a verb, is that it's an example of love. Love fervently, how? Be hospitable. <laughs> In fact, hospitality means, New Testament term, love for strangers. Here's a way we can be loving, and that is be receptive to, to, to strangers and loving towards them, opening our lives to them, opening our hearts, opening our homes to them. It's been said before here, hospitality was highly valued in the early church, it was, and it's frequently mentioned in the New Testament. You know, and why was that? Because hospitality, opening your lives, opening your homes to one another, uh, even to strangers, was absolutely essential for the early church. For the gospel to survive and spread, Christians needed to receive one another. Traveling speakers uh, from church to church would bring letters from one church to another to introduce themselves. You know, staying in public inns was undesirable in that day and expensive in many cases. And so Peter here, once again, he uses a reciprocal pronoun, so I don't think he has in mind so much love for any sort of stranger, but love for your, among yourselves, among the churches that he's writing to. There was five, six churches he's writing to in what we call northern Turkey today. And he says, so you need to be showing hospitality to one another. Remember that they didn't have buildings. And so what did they do? They met in homes, and, and they would rotate the homes, right? It's your home this month, and we'll all be coming to your place. You know, when they hosted us, they did a great job. <laughs> How about you? He said, be hospitable. Open your homes and your lives without grumbling. And when he says that, what's he admit? <laughs> it's hard to be hospitable <laughs> sometimes. It can be tiring. It can be exhausting. It can wear you out. But they had to be. You know, the word without murmuring, murmur, murmur, without grumbling, the root of that word comes from the cooing of doves. We have a pair of doves that's been trying to build a nest on our outdoor speaker like this for years. Never works. <laughs> and we hear them outside our sliding door cooing. The cooing sound. 
He says, without murmuring. What's Peter getting at? He's talking about when you and your wife, if you're married, you go into the kitchen, and everyone hears a little, and you're saying in there, when are they going to leave? <laughs> My gosh. You see how much he eats? <laughs> I can't wait till next month to get him out of here. Hi, everybody. Yeah. He says, without that, open your lives to each other. You know, hospitality, like I said, was essential for the church, but love demonstrated like that towards strangers continues to be a powerful testimony of the reality of the gospel. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another, and not just one another, but towards strangers. I mentioned about a month ago a couple that's been coming to our church. I'll say again, I'll mention again, they came from a Middle Eastern country. They did not know the language. They moved to the United States. They spent time in Chicago, and their understanding of God was a God of wrath, a God of judgment. And they were taken in by a Christian woman, and they experienced hospitality, Christian love. And then they heard and read about a God of love. And, and they came to rest their minds on God demonstrates his own love towards us. And the why we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And they moved to California and they are here at this congregation. I want you to hear their whole testimony. They will be baptized, Lord willing, next Sunday. So after the second service. And I want you to hear the power of loving hospitality and how God worked through that to open their hearts to the truth of the greater love, which is that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. I want to quote uh, John Wesley one last time, and I'll go to my last point. Remember, he and his brother didn't get along theologically. And he said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Can you do that? Praise God, many of you did that during the pandemic. You know who you are. <laughs> what do I mean? We weren't all of the same opinion. But could you be of the same love? And that's what... That's what he's talking about. Be earnest above all. Above all love. Lastly, serve faithfully. Yes, think soberly for the sake of your prayers. Love fervently by showing hospitality. Lastly, serve faithfully. Verse 10, 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's Varied grace. Wow, each little clause there is beautiful. As each has received a gift. Uh, in the original language, each one is emphatic. In other words, let's be clear. If you're a Christian, each one of you, <laughs> is what he's saying, has received a gift from God. Every one of you. What is this gift? It's a charism. It's the same word for grace. It's a gift that's given by God's grace to you. We're told by Paul it comes through the Holy Spirit. 
And what is a gift? It is a spiritual capacity or ability that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, there's, there's a variety of gifts, but one spirit, you see. Each one of you has a gift, and you are to do what? What's he say? You are to use it to serve one another. It's, it's not to glory in what God's made you or given you, but it's to serve one another He goes on, as good stewards, as good stewards. You know what a steward was? A steward was one of those household servants that the master of the house would leave in charge when he departed, and at times when he was still there, who had to distribute the provisions to the household. Why, we read of that in Luke 9, or Luke 12, rather earlier when he said who then is the faithful and wise manager household manager the household steward he was answering Peter's question does this apply to me (laughs) and Jesus goes on and says who then is the faithful and wise manager that household steward whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time in other words, the steward was the one who needed to distribute and uh, th- that which the, the master had given him. You know what? You are a steward. Each one of you is a steward. And what do you distribute? Grace. You distribute grace to other people. And God's made you a steward of his grace. And Paul says, moreover, it's required of a steward that he be found Faithful. Faithful right? You've been entrusted with a capacity, a gift, a spiritual capacity, and God will work His grace through you and touch other people's lives. Now, you may not think of yourself in that way, but listen, there are no useless members in the body of Christ, no useless people in the local church. You may not think of yourself in this life, but you must, because it's essential to every one of us. We're all stewards of His grace. I know sometimes when you start talking about using your gifts, and people say, what are, you, what are the elders going to ask us to do? What do they expect? We expect God to be true to His word. And that is that if you'll just step up and do whatever He's put in front of you, His grace will come through you. <laughs> And other people will be blessed. That's what we expect. (laughs) So you think about that. You think, I'm not sure I know what gift I have. Ask those closest to you. Ask a spouse. Ask a parent, a dad, a son, a daughter. How does God's grace come through this individual? And it comes in many, many, many different ways. No person is alike. Even if we have the same type of gifts, it will look different. In fact, he says something very interesting when he says to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That term varied means multicolored. It is the same Greek term used to translate the Hebrew term in the story of Joseph's multicolored coat. And I remember the story of Joseph. His father gave him a multicolored coat. And what was, 
What was the fact that it was multicolored? Reflecting. It was his love for him. His love for him reflected in the beauty of these multicolors. God loves the church. The church is the apple of his eye, and he has given to the church multicolored grace, and it comes through each individual member of the church because he's given you that capacity. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, you know that Paul tends to list gifts and put them in certain orders. Peter doesn't do that here. What's he do? If you want that later, you can go look at 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, for example, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 12 and 13. But here, notice Peter puts all gifts in two broad categories. I think that's helpful, right? He says there, instead of debating all these other gifts, (laughs) there are speaking gifts where God's grace comes through you to others through what you say. And there are serving gifts, everything else, everything other than speaking, where God's grace comes through you in its various colors through how you serve other people. Speaking could be preaching, teaching. It could be uh, comforting, exhorting. It it could uh, happen in many contexts, Sunday school, pulpit, camp. It could happen in your home at the kitchen table. Uh, speaking, and you say, I can't do that. Sometimes, look, <laughs> you do have to talk, and I know you can. So sometimes it's being able to speak what? One sentence of truth. And that may be enough to pick somebody up right there. Speaking, speaking, right? Yes, you can. Serving. Serving gifts. That's it. All other forms of Christian ministry and love towards others in any other way other than, than speaking. And now here he mentions strength, the strength that God supplies. And why is that? Because serving other people can be exhausting. Talk to everyone who went to camp. Right? <laughs> I did it many years. It can be exhausting. You know what else is exhausting? Serving people week in and week out that never say thank you. They never say thanks for taking care of my kids. That's exhausting. So we serve how? By the strength that God supplies to think soberly, think rightly. Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time, right? In due time, you will be rewarded. That's thinking soberly, thinking rightly. My reward doesn't come from people noticing. Where's it coming from? The Lord, when he comes and looks at me and says to each of you by name, come into the kingdom, welcome my good and faithful servant. You were busy doing what I left you there to do. Now listen, I know that um, not I know that there are seasons of life. You know, and not everyone is like our sister Diane Schachterly who has taught Sunday school for what, four or five decades. <laughs> I know we go through seasons of life and there's ups and downs and we're in a season of life now, it's later and we don't always serve the same way. It's I'm talking about if you can't find a ministry to have 
a, a concern and love for others where you will pick up the phone, where you look for them out there and talk to them, where you open your home for a community group or some gathering. There's ways to serve the body. And he says, what is the purpose of this? So that we conclude. We are to speak, those who speak, as one who speaks the oracles of God. That means that's your attitude. You're talking about God. So when you say, thus says the Lord, did the Lord say that? <laughs> and it's also talking about the content. Yeah, your attitude, be careful and speak truth. And lastly, and the one who serves, serving by the strength that God supplies, to what end? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So it sounds like our purpose statement. The other way around, like the purpose statement sounds like this, right? We exist to magnify the glory of God through Jesus Christ in all things, right? Does God need more glory? No, but his glory needs to be more known. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. And people will praise the name of God. He'll be glorified when we live as a church in this way, like that one woman did for that couple that came from a foreign country. And next week, his name's gonna be hallowed here because she opened her heart and her life to strangers. How does this happen? It happens by the strength he supplies. Living in light of the end, not complicated. You don't need charts. You don't need timelines. You need to think soberly, love fervently, serve faithfully. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your patience with, for people like me, for people like us. Our heart goes up and down. Our devotion wanes. It, it rises, it declines. Help us, God, to live in a way that pleases you as our Heavenly Father, to think soberly, to love fervently, to serve faithfully, day in, day out. Help us simply to live as Christians in this day and age. So magnify your name, we pray, in each of our lives and in the collective life of this church. Oh, Lord, we thank you that uh, in mercy you give grace. You gave us these gifts. Help us to be thankful for how others have used that grace and brought it to us, we pray. And, Lord, we express our, our worship of you, not only in song as we finish, but through our offerings. We pray you would help us to be cheerful, joyful givers and that uh, we'd be mindful of those who cannot give. For those whom it's hard, Lord, we pray you meet their needs now in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>